There's no better time to become a member of the DSR network. Later this month, we'll be announcing a major media partnership to our ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, bringing you even more insight and analysis than ever before. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, an evening newsletter recapping the day's top stories, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of October, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SPOOKY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SPOOKY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Words Matter. This is your host, Kavita Patel, along with Norm Ornstein, and it's been a while since uh, we're recording this, but uh, I've been away and doing some very fun things on the Stanford campus, which always give me a lot of uh, inspiration, Norm, that there's some hope for humanity when when I can talk to, I, I would like to say young people, but it's just, I'll say people people of all ages who are kind of in an education environment, and uh, Norm, you'll, you'll love this. I when I was there, that was when it was this past like three weeks um, that we thought the government, which I personally, and I think the majority opinion was that the government would shut down September 30th at midnight. And there were many times in just my like lectures and comments where I said, you know, with the pending government shutdown and people would say to me, what shutdown? And so it was a very, it was a very (laughs) uh, bizarre mental state that I was in where I kind of was, you know, paying attention to your Twitter feed or X feed and doing all the things to up to minute reprieve of a shutdown. And uh, in Palo Alto, people were blissfully unaware of uh, what, what I would have said was a crisis averted only to have what I think has now unfolded uh, this past week. So let's, let's uh, not that we need to, but let's catch listeners up onto the state of play of the GOP and I do want you to address something that a lot of friends have asked me, and I haven't been able to articulately kind of re- produce a response, and I know you will. Many friends, reasonable people, educated people, people who do read the newspaper and knew about the shutdown have said, why didn't the Democrats come and save McCarthy? And, and I didn't know how to characterize how odious this person was how I felt like, and, and I'm going to read just because this is words matter. And I'm, I'm, I'm hundred percent sure you saw it, but I'm going to read AOC's um, tweet. And it wasn't exactly about like defending Democrats, but I think it did capture nicely. Uh, and I have to read it. So um, this is an, a tweet from a couple of days ago, contrary to how McCarthy's defenders are behaving Men failing up is not a constitutionally protected right. The man, McCarthy, made risky decisions and faced the natural consequences of them. I am not his mom, and my job is not to put pool noodles around hard corners for Republicans. I think that summarized everything that I felt but could not put into words. 
So Norm, catch us up. Where are we to? Why don't you put some words that are slightly more eloquent and maybe can match AOC to like, why didn't the Democrats come in? Because now we're going to have what I would say is not even a dumpster fire would be a kind kind of uh, image to describe it as it's a, a complete shit show. All right, Norm. <laughs> so I will get to that, uh, but you have now spurred me, Kavita, to tell my favorite story about the West Coast versus uh, the East Coast. Oh, good. <laughs> In 1970, 1979, I was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences uh, in Palo Alto, uh, living on the Stanford campus. And one day I watched the local news from San Francisco. It started with the greengrocer and about four minutes talking about what fresh produce was available at the different stores in San Francisco. Then they went to a breaking news story, which was at a trailer park where a couple of grandparents uh, who had lost their uh, uh, son and daughter-in-law in a car crash had taken in their child, but there was a no child uh, uh, ordinance at the trailer park. And so they talked for about five minutes about what was going on there. Then they came back to the greengrocer. Then they did weather and sports. Back to the greengrocer a third time. And then right at the end of the news uh, show, they said, in other news, 52 hostages were seized in Iran today. And (laughs) that, that to me was the priorities of the Bay Area (laughs) compared to Washington, (laughs) D.C. So maybe it's changed a little, but from what you're suggesting, not that much. I I mean, look, I Uh, thought that it was pretty funny that I had to explain to people, you know, and they were like, the government will shut down? I said, yeah. And and they're like, wow, has that ever happened before? And I said, it has. And and anyway, so I, but now that story does actually uh, top mine. So yeah, that's okay. Now back to, well, it's, that's back to, back to the reality that we uh, deal with. The news. news. Back. Yes. (laughs) So back to the reality. First of all, I want to take a couple of minutes to anchor this. We knew that Kevin McCarthy's days were numbered at the beginning of the 118th Congress when it took him 15 votes in multiple days, and he had to make concession after concession, I would say he sold his soul, except uh, you then have to have a soul to sell it. Uh, And obviously, one of the concessions that he finally had to make was to Matt Gates to uh, enable one member to uh, put forward this privileged motion to vacate the speakership. And it was inevitable that Matt Gates would pull that trigger. But this was not something that started uh, in January of uh, 2023. In fact, the seeds for McCarthy's demise were set in part by Kevin McCarthy more than a decade ago. In 2010, Kevin McCarthy, Eric Cantor, and Paul Ryan published a book called Young Guns, and it was taken from a movie, a 1988 movie with Emilio Estevez. And Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, of young, young gunslingers. What was interesting about that book, which was a conservative manifesto, we need to slash taxes, slash spending, blow up Washington, uh, was that in that book, they did not even mention their leader, John Boehner. And they then took the manifesto out to the country 
This was after the financial collapse of 2008-2009, a backlash against Barack Obama, and it was the rise of the Tea Party, which they encouraged and inflamed and abetted and brought in this group of radicals, promising them that they would immediately cut $100 billion from spending and use the debt ceiling to force Barack Obama to his knees. That did not work. The first victim was Eric Cantor, who was the leader of that group, who lost in a primary two years later to a Tea Party guy, Dave Bratt. John Boehner was forced out of the speakership, pushed in part by McCarthy. Paul Ryan replaced him. But what we need to keep in mind here, Kavita, is that Kevin McCarthy wanted to replace John Boehner, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't get the votes. Back then, in 2015, it was clear that many of his colleagues, starting with the Freedom Caucus, which had just started up, and the others on the right, didn't trust him. So Paul Ryan steps in, last four years, leaves because he's got the same headaches with the lunatic fringe, and the lunatic fringe was moving to be not a fringe, but the majority. And it was pretty clear after Ryan and Cantor and Boehner that the next victim was going to be Kevin McCarthy. I can use two analogies here. One is the young guns were shot down by their own gang at the OK Corral. And the other is they created a Frankenstein uh, monster that turned around and ravaged them. So the roots of this have been coming for a long time. We could even stretch it back to Gingrich, but we're not going to take the time to do that. And what they have all contributed to creating is not a conventional political party, but a radical cult that demands fealty to extreme principles. And Kevin McCarthy kissed their asses over and over again, but in the end, it wasn't enough. And whoever replaces him is not going to be in a better position. Well, let's talk about the who. Now. Yes. Go get to what happens now. But let me talk about the Democrats. Oh, oh, Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yes. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I think your, you know, your point is very well taken. The reality is that Democrats have harbored deep animosity towards Kevin McCarthy going back to January 6th. On January 6th, we may remember Kevin McCarthy called Donald Trump when the place was uh, being ransacked and members' lives were at stake and demanded that Donald Trump call off his dogs. And what Donald Trump said to him was, I think they care more about the election than you do, Kevin. He went on the floor and condemned Trump and then two weeks later went down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss his ring and other parts of his anatomy, then condemned two people in his own party, Liz Cheney and uh, Adam Kinsinger, voted uh, to declare that the election had uh, been stolen and then tried to undermine an independent commission to look at January 6th and to blow up the and discredit the January 6th committee. So uh, while he left his own crazies, including the ones who had aided and abetted January 6th, alone, and in fact coddled them. So Democrats had grievances. But I think if Kevin McCarthy had gone to Hakeem Jeffries 
and said, look, this is nuts. I'll tell you what, let's work together. I'll stop this crazy impeachment investigation. We'll work to make sure the government stays open and is funded and to get Ukraine its funding. And that's going to mean bipartisan coalitions, but we can make this work. Instead, after springing on the Democrats this continuing resolution to punt the shutdown for 45 days, cutting out funding for Ukraine, he sprang that on the Democrats. They saved his ass by voting for it. And then he went on television to blame the Democrats. So the fact that he is untrustworthy and is despicable is something shared by all the Democrats. So remember that you have Democrats uh, who are on the right end of their party, the so-called problem solvers, who would have been happy to find some kind of deal. Not a single Democrat, including ones who often vote with Republicans like Jared Golden of Maine, deviated from this line of saying, we're not going to support this guy. And of course, now the Republicans are blaming the Democrats for it, which is insane. Which is insane. Um, so Norm, I agree completely that uh, not just January 6th, but I, I, I forgot about the young guns. I remember, I, I actually have that cover in my head of the book. And I remember that thinking, wow, this is pretty lame, even back then. And it's even worse now. You're right. So yes, as I thought you would put a much more... Um, eloquent set of sentences together to why when when anybody kind of raises the notion of like well why wouldn't the democrats save him isn't the alternative worse you you have eloquently stated why there was absolutely no saving number one and number two you're right and i did actually ask like several kind of i'm sure you did too did mccarthy reach out was there any like conversations you know back channel none i mean very senior democrats who said None, none whatsoever. So maybe, maybe McCarthy spoke to, I don't even know if he spoke to Hakeem, you know, I, I, I can imagine it's exactly as you described, there was zero attempt to say, let's bring some rational government. And then I knew that when McConnell wanted to get Ukraine aid in there, and that McCarthy was like, I'm not having it, forget it. I knew at that point, there was no chance McCarthy was going to come across the aisle to Democrats. I mean, this is where, like, for a lot of reasons that we can get into, like, this was, to me, one of the first times I've seen, I mean, I've seen McConnell indictment of the impeachment of Trump and some other things, but but usually McConnell finds a way to get his way. And even in this instance, it was, it was not possible. So, okay. All right. So then, Norm, paint the scenario of what happens next. Is our best alternative, you know, worse and worst with um, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise? And, like, where, tell me... I've had also very thoughtful friends, similar friends that overlap with why aren't the Democrats saving McCarthy say, which one is better? And I said, that's like asking me, like, you know, which nuclear option is like a better nuclear option? They're both nuclear. The, the outcome is the same. That's how I've interpreted it. But tell me what you're hearing, thinking, and how you would phrase this to and frame this for the country. Like, where are we headed? And it's very dark, but go ahead. Well, I will use a bad uh, analogy uh, with the two of them. It's like, which would you rather have, gonorrhea or syphilis? Oh, dear. Um, that's the two leaders we're, we're dealing with. But <laughs> there's one other point we ought to make here, Kavita, which is your friends who are thinking that Kevin McCarthy would have been a more moderate or less radical uh, alternative if he were kept. One thing is clear. 
if Democrats had saved him now, what would he have done after that? He would have said, the one thing I want to avoid is uh, another Matt Gates uh, uh, attempt to oust me. So I am going to move even further to pander to the lunatics in my conference, and it would have been even worse. So now we have two candidates, and the Republicans are going to meet in their conference and try and unite behind one of them. We know that several of them, uh, led by Marjorie Taylor Greene, have said they will not vote for anybody as speaker except Donald Trump. Uh, so they may have a little difficulty coming to a consensus because obviously they can uh, have a majority, a substantial majority of their conference unite behind one of these two candidates or somebody else who might uh, enter the race. Um, but they're going to need all uh, except uh, four to be able to prevail. So what have we got? Here are our alternatives. We have Steve Scalise, who has been the majority leader, who has had a very contentious relationship with McCarthy because McCarthy believes and knows that he's just been waiting in the wings for McCarthy to falter so he could take over. But remember that Steve Scalise, famously from Louisiana, attended a rally of David Dukes and then defined himself as David Duke without the baggage. So that's one alternative. The second, Jim Jordan. And when uh, John Boehner left the House, having been frustrated as Speaker, he uh, characterized Jim Jordan as a legislative terrorist. And if anything, he has moved uh, uh, even further to the terrorist side uh, in the years since Boehner left. And of course, Jordan otherwise is best known for having been a coach uh, of the wrestling team at Ohio State University who knew about massive amounts of sexual assaults against the wrestlers and covered it up and did nothing. So this is a man without any character who also has no concern for institutions. And uh, he would, you know, put a, an even worse face on the House, uh, which would be good for Democrats if we're just looking at who will take a majority in uh, the 2024 elections, but would be an absolute catastrophe, including for Ukraine. Uh, at a pivotal time when the Ukraine offensive, counteroffensive, is really starting to take hold and the Russians are faltering. For us, now with 45 days without funding, but enough in the pipeline to keep them going, Jim Jordan has said he will not bring up a separate bill to uh, provide additional funding for Ukraine. So one of the happiest people on the planet right now with what happened to Kevin McCarthy is Vladimir Putin. Uh, now, there's one other thing that we ought to say here, and this is something that people need to keep in mind. The first reaction of the Republicans after McCarthy's defeat, with a temporary speaker in place, uh, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, who is very close to Kevin McCarthy, and for those of you who watched uh, the proceedings, saw him slam his gavel down in anger. 
The first thing he did while Nancy Pelosi was out in San Francisco to attend the funeral of Dianne Feinstein was to say, I'm kicking you out of your Capitol hideaway office. We are changing the locks tomorrow while she was away. Followed that by doing the same thing to Steny Hoyer, who has been a model of trying to find bipartisan agreement. So the pettiness, the thuggery is there, even with McCarthy gone. And the members of the Problem Solvers Caucus, what is supposed to be the centrist glue, uh, equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats, the Republicans in this Problem Solvers Caucus, instead of solving the problem, said that they were going to walk out en masse to protest what the Democrats had done, not what their own people had done. But if we have a path forward here with either of these radicals as the speaker, it is the little used but always available weapon of the discharge petition. This is something that goes back to the last revolt major revolt against a speaker in 1910, Joe Cannon. And they brought in this provision where if a committee and the leadership bottled up something that a majority of the members wanted, a majority of the House could sign a petition and it would force it out to get a vote on the floor. It's a cumbersome thing. It takes a long time. Democrats have had one in the wings and they could use it to get funding for Ukraine. They could use it to keep the government open. But it would require getting the public signatures of at least five Republicans. And now the question is, are there even five who are not such deep moral cowards who would try to do something to save the republic? So, uh, so many things to unpack and take extended threads there. I, I've... Uh, I think it's more of um, I've put purposeful blind spots in my memory around Jim Jordan and Scalise uh, and, and for good reason, because they're odious creatures. And it is very interesting, Norm, that you and I, I think it's worth taking stock that you and I are now kind of reflecting on Paul Ryan and Newt Gingrich in a very positive way and John Boehner in a way, in a way I'm sitting here thinking, wow, you know, Things, there's a psychological phenomenon that you know well that like kind of everything's contextual. So like there are many times where it, this is when I was on the Hill kind of going to battle with, you know, with Newt Gingrich and kind of thinking about um, just some of the ideological differences that we had as Democrats and Republicans and, and Boehner and certainly Paul Ryan uh, when he was kind of at the peak of his popularity and you know, had like all the House members uh, doing workouts on the Hill, that type of thing. But I, I, I can't help but think that like context matters, and we're in a very different time in 2023. So you're right. I think this is like the worst of evils. And you brought up the discharge petition. Another very common question. Um, you brought up the kind of 45 days for the shutdown. Um, the third point is, can you just for our listeners, because I think you and I have been in some of these hideaways, explain, I think people were very confused, as if Nancy Pelosi was squatting somewhere, not at all. Can you just <laughs> um, do, can you just do the like, you know, Wikipedia of like, what the hideaway, what that meant? This was not her squatting in like the speaker's office when she wasn't supposed to this was her right to have and and just explain kind of the significance of that because that to me also again talking about 2023 and what matters as point of reference 
when was it Boehner? Who? Which transition was it when Pelosi came in as Speaker? Norm it was after Boehner. It was Boehner, right? Where she did, yeah. where the exact same, the exact thing happened, and Pelosi did not ask Boehner to move, didn't force him to do anything, and felt like once a speaker that you have right. like some I take that back. It was Ryan. Yeah. It was Ryan. It, either way, though, there was a change of power. Anyway, go ahead. Can you explain this hideaway thing? Because I don't think people understand it, and it doesn't lend itself to being explained well. <laughs> so the Capitol has official offices of leaders. Anybody walking through the Capitol will see a suite of offices for the speaker and one for the majority leader and the whip and the same on the minority side. But there are also offices sort of tucked away in uh, uh, private corridors of the Capitol that uh, many senators and a handful of House members have where they can have a kind of private and more quiet space, one where you don't have staff around, but it's um, a, a great place to be able to meet people away from the hustle and bustle. Uh, what uh, we saw Patrick McHenry do was to take, there aren't very many of these, but traditionally the speaker coming in uh, bends over backwards to provide some facilities for the outgoing leaders. And that's what has happened in the past. That's what has happened with every previous speaker. This is just a stupid, petty move. Uh, now, there's something else, though, that's worth mentioning here, Kavita, which is these hideaway offices do not have numbers on them. You don't know unless you are directed there where they are or who they belong to. If you're going to the Speaker's office, you know you go to 221B on the House side of the Capitol or whatever the number may be. These are, are private. Um, I've been escorted to many of them uh, in the past when I've met with uh, leaders or, or people in the Senate. What was one of the most stunning elements of January 6th is that some of these rioters, these violent insurrectionists, knew exactly where to go to find the hideaway offices of some of the prominent leaders in Congress. How did they know that? Because somebody, most likely one of the Republicans in the House, perhaps working with somebody in the office of the architect of the Capitol, gave them a map to tell them where to go. Did Kevin McCarthy do anything to root out who might have done that? Have any of them been punished? No. So it's there's a lot behind these hideaway offices that even goes beyond the crassness and thuggery of Patrick McHenry. Instead of saying, we've just been through a difficult time, now it's time to come together and try to find a way to move forward as a Congress and a country. It's screw you, we're going to stick it to you, even as we leave our own insurrectionists alone. I... Um I think that that's worth just because again, it's like the word hideaway makes it seem like literally Nancy Pelosi was like in a corner hiding, uh, which by the way, she should be because of this environment, but it's, it's the triple insult. It's, as you mentioned, like kind of what the history of, you know, precedent has been. And there's, there is for it, for anybody who like wants to understand 
like Washington, D.C., for all of its politics and even for some of the like Schumer and McConnell and this, there is just an effort to like actually believe it or not, get along and work. And so there's the, the, what you see on camera most of the time. And then there's like a layer of like people just need to get work done and Congress and others and the administration and people do work across the aisle, or at least they used to. And now there is not only is there very little like across the aisle kind of conversation, but Norm, I hear from friends on the House side that it's exactly as you described. There's actually like this toxicity where the staff may talk to each other, but they know that there's no universe where they're going to get people, you know, their their bosses, especially from the 13, you know, the gang of 13 that are kind of causing the most problems on the GOP side. There's no working with them. There's no, you're not going to see um, some bipartisan legislation, you know, with such and such and Gates or such and such and Jordan. It's just not going to happen. And that for for Americans is disturbing, no matter what your party affiliation is. That means that government is the way that our constitutional kind of framers had thought about like kind of the three branches and how we think about like the rule of law does not apply. And and then when you add to that, we we didn't even have time. Maybe we can get into the latest antics of Clarence Thomas. Feels like Clarence has kind of gotten away a little bit scot-free without having to think about some of this. Uh, We have not given him as much media attention because between what Donald Trump is doing in court in New York and what's unfolding uh, kind of on the halls of Congress, there's been a little less um, oxygen uh, to talk about Clarence Thomas and some of his um, recusals or lack thereof. But maybe we can dive into that a little more. So let's let's close out. We're going to get into, we wanted to get into some of what's, uh, Nancy Pelosi was at Senator Feinstein's funeral as this was all unfolding. We want to talk in our members only section a little bit about the dynamics there now with uh, not only Senator Feinstein's passing, but uh, the new senator that was sworn in, um, Senator LaFonza Butler, and kind of what that dynamic will look like. But close us out, Norm. So let's do a temperature check on where we are heading into 2024. What, if anything, has this past week's events done to help or hurt Biden or help or hurt the GOP? Just frame it. So uh, just one thing before we get to that, uh, I suspect you have had a lot of people, as I have had, saying, well, now is the time for Hakeem Jeffries to uh, reach across and find five or six Republicans and, you know, either get them to vote for him to become speaker or at least to find a way to work together. And why won't that happen? It's because of a couple of things. One is the level of moral cowardice across the board on the Republican side is something I find stunning. There are plenty there who in a different environment would be constructive, but they're afraid. And, you know, the conventional wisdom is, oh, they don't want a primary challenge or they are afraid that they'll lose their seats. And if they leave, they won't be able to get a job because they've uh, uh, been apostates. But this is a couple of uh, other, uh, there are a couple of other reasons that are important here. This is a cult. Uh, What happens in a cult? If you defy the cult, you are shunned or excommunicated. And for many of these people going back home and having their own friends and supporters uh, shun them as traitors is powerful. But even more than that, Donald Trump is inciting violence out there. He is calling for violence. He's calling for it against judges and law clerks and prosecutors. 
but he's also called for it more broadly. And these Republicans are frightened for their own lives and the lives of their families. And that's something that's going to have long-term consequences for whether we're able to come together as a country. And I fear the rise of violence uh, a little bit further down the road. But right now we are in an, an ungovernable place. And if we do not find a half dozen House Republicans who can transcend these issues and you know find ways to get keep the government open or to reopen it if we have an extended destructive shutdown and to make sure we continue to fund Ukraine, which is very much in our national interest, uh, as well as uh, in that of free people everywhere, uh, then we're going to have a really rough year. And while it's clear that this is all Republicans, if the economy tanks because of an extended shutdown or because nothing can be done in Congress, the president is not going to escape unscathed. So the consequences of this could be drastic, not just in the next year, but beyond that. And that reinforces, and then we'll, we'll close, I promise. But uh, that reinforces, I attended, it was like a kind of, for uh, not media, but kind of a closed briefing, Anita Dunn and several others, when we, at September 27th or 28th, when we did just think the shutdown was inevitable. And, and, and the talking points, unlike the shutdown during the Trump years, as you recall, Norm, because Trump was key in shutting down the government. Um, unlike then, there's a great, like, kind of narrative of like, this is not us at the White House, we want to work across the aisle, we want to kind of find a way to keep government open. This is the Republicans. That does not when when you are when we were getting to the point, which we probably will, when we were getting to the point where you know, WIC benefits, TSA, all of this. And we were talking about like the impact to everyday America, Americans, even if they don't realize the government has stopped, that is exactly something they'll put on the blame of the president. And it, it, it struck me as slightly tone deaf when I thought, okay, it's good for us inside the beltway to talk about the GOP and this and this. At the end of the day, like you feel like, okay, but isn't that what the president is elected to do? Isn't he the leader of like the country? Doesn't, doesn't he have to kind of figure it out? Not an unreasonable question. So I agree. You're right. It doesn't benefit anybody if this goes on. And I fully expect however many days we are 40 days away from another, you know, from a threat of another shutdown that this one might be the real one heading us into the holidays. Can you imagine during the holiday season, TSA grinding potentially to a halt, et cetera. So let's, uh, Let's see what happens. I agree. Half a dozen uh, Republicans is all it's going to take, but we'll see. We'll see if we can do it. And you know that Pelosi's probably working the scenes as well as Jeffries and any of the other leadership. But all right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Hopefully you learned something, provoked your thoughts if you can. And it did. Please share this podcast and also rate our podcast. We're on all your favorite podcast players. Feel free to drop a review. And if you can, and you haven't already become a member of the DSR network, we're heading into the holiday season, less than a pumpkin spice latte a month, we promise. And it'll be more of an investment back into your own sanity and democracy, hopefully. Um, Words Matter is a production of the DSR network. Our incredible producer is Riley Fessler and our executive producer is Chris Cotmore. Our next episode of Words Matter should be in your feeds in or around October 12th. Thank you so much. 